You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarca Barrett. My guest is Kim Foster, author of the memoir, The Meth Lunches, Food and Longing in an American City. Kim is a James Beard award-winning food writer who writes about people at the intersection of food and mental illness, family separation, poverty, addiction, trauma, and incarceration. You can read her work on her weekly newsletter, kimfoster.substack.com on her website, kiminthewest.com, and on Instagram at kiminthewest. She lives in Las Vegas, Nevada with her husband, David, their four kids, and many animals. On the show, we talked about hybrid memoirs, surprises in writing her memoir, when she knew this would be a book, writing about food that isn't pretty, learning to never write anyone off, and much more. Before we bring her on, a few words about Patreon. Please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com, Writers on Writing. Any amount of support helps us to continue bringing the show to you. Since 1998, when Writers on Writing began broadcasting at KUCI-FM on the UC Irvine campus, we've aired a show every week, even during COVID. It's a volunteer effort, with Marie and I hosting and producing, and Travis Barrett creating the music and editing sound. A few dollars a month goes far in helping us to continue bringing the show to you. You can also help the show by buying your books at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing, where you will find books by authors who've been on the show as well as other books we recommend. And now for my talk with Kim Foster. So Kim, I'm so happy to talk to you about the meth lunches. Hi, Barbara. Talk about how the book came about. Um, I, uh, the book happened after I spent some time, uh, I opened a pantry in my front yard and, um, it was just a simple thing, like putting out toilet paper and things that people had hoarded and were not available in the stores at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was just for the neighborhood. And then, um, people just started coming up and, asking for more than I had to offer, like saying, do you have this or do you have that? Or so, and it just went from there. You could see there was real need. The government in the beginning wasn't issuing checks. They weren't responding to people's needs and people were really, really scared. And people who were generally struggling really spiraled when their small stability and you know uh the things that they could control all of a sudden they couldn't control anymore so if they had a job that sort of kept them afloat without that going people went from like eating breakfast to not knowing what they were going to have for lunch and so the pantry was really born out of that and um a lot of people started coming and what it did was put me really face to face with some of the most vulnerable people in our in our community. And it got me really thinking a lot about as a food writer, what food meant for people who were really struggling with various things like mental illness, addiction, those kinds of things. So when you moved to Vegas, because you moved from New York. Uh, We did. We moved from New York City. Did you expect there would be a book coming out of this move? Um, Because you didn't move to write. I did not. And I did not think about this as a place to write at all. In fact, we were going to come here for a year. um, And just because my husband was producing a show. And when we got here, um, all the things that we sort of complain about as New Yorkers were sort of solved instantly. Like, um, you know, I'm a parent uh, and a writer. And so a lot of my writing time is really sort of... um, you know, around parenting and in and out of parenting and at night and after people go to bed and things like that. And I immediately saved, and this is no exaggeration, by moving out of New York, I I got myself five hours a week, just not parking the car. (laughs) So, you know, you know, there's more space, there's better weather, 
And all of a sudden, things got easier. And even though I love New York and will always love New York, I didn't expect to want to stay in Vegas, but it's been really delightful and it's been really nice. And we have four kids and it's that's like basically a clan in New York City. So, you know, that's like having 10 kids in New York. So, <laughs> well, um, I was wondering as I was reading, as I was reading the meth lunches, I was wondering if you would call it a hybrid memoir because, and I ask this because as well as it being about your move and dealing with certain characters, people, right? They're characters in memoir as well as fiction. Um, your move, um, it's, it's about so much more. It's about feeding people. It's about poverty. It's about meth addiction. Mm -hmm. So do you think of it as a hybrid memoir? Oh, that's such a great question, Barbara, because I think part of it is that I consider myself a memoirist. And when, when we were in talks around the book deal, um, they wanted, you know, memoirs are sort of notoriously difficult to sell unless it's a celebrity memoir or something like that. And they were very much, I mean, they were super supportive, but they also were very much wanting a nonfiction book and uh, like full of research and academic connections and those kinds of things. But I really wanted to write a, a book about vulnerable communities that people could understand. And it wasn't math driven because a lot of talk about poverty becomes math driven. You make this much like money in, money out, right? Like if you don't have this much, if you can't afford this, then this happens to you. And I wanted to really tell these very, very personal stories. And the only way I felt that I could do that was through sort of my own lens and my own uh, first person um, sort of memoir. So I tried to combine those things. And I love that you sort of noticed that because it isn't really a memoir, but it's also really not straight nonfiction either. It's It really is a hybrid and that's really well said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard that about memoir. Like if you can make your memoir hybrid, if you can teach people something about something other than your own life, then it's more marketable. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's really but, fascinating. But did you, it sounds like, well, I mean, how did that go though? Did you propose it? Did you get an agent first? And did you propose to the agent through a query letter? I'm, I'm writing a memoir about such and such. And then, and then the publisher, the agent, took you on and then got you a publisher and the publisher said, yes, we like this, but add this in. I mean, how did that go? So it was, it was, so, so I've been in the blogging space since around 2007. And so uh, I knew my agent from way back when bloggers were getting book deals back in the 2010s. And um, we had uh, talked about writing a book about motherhood and anger um, way back. And then um, that book, I just didn't want to spend two years writing about my anger. So um, <laughs> I just felt like that would be, that would make me angry, actually. Angry. So, um, so it just didn't pan out. And um, so I had written a couple of essays. One was nominated for a James Beard Award and the other won a James Beard Award. And in food writing, that's pretty much the pinnacle of, you know, in terms of awards and recognition. So uh, as soon as that happens, um, it's really time to, um, I don't want to sound crass when I say this, but to sort of cash in on the award because two years from now, that award isn't going to mean anything, right? So mm -hmm. when I won, I really took that as an opportunity that um, and, mix, and connected that to the fact that I felt in this part of my life, I had something valuable to say, having just come off this pantry experience. So we wasn't even thinking about it as a book when we were in the middle of it. Um, and there's a lot about foster care and very and those kinds of things, which because we were foster parents. So all those things really came together. Um, and then and so once the award happened, um, I really just started cobbling together a book proposal and uh, went back to this agent, Stacy Glick, is terrific and mostly does is works in the food space, although she does other things, but she works a lot in the food space. And she thought it was a great idea. And then she just started shopping it around. So, uh, and it worked out. And, you know, I have to say I had like dream publishers, like St. Martin's has been, um, they've worked with me on, 
um, on, on, on the concept of that hybrid concept that I wanted to do. And they also worked with me on something that I think a lot of writers maybe struggle with, which is that I'm a writer who needs to write it to know how I feel. I don't know if you're like that, Barbara, but sometimes I don't know how I feel about something unless I've written it. So I was very upfront with them that I didn't know if the book proposal would actually look like the book because I didn't know what I would think until I got into it. And they were very open to that, which I thought was really um, big of them because I think there was a lot of mystery in terms of how the book would feel when it came out. Oh yeah, that that's amazing to hear that they're saying, yeah, you know, we trust you. <laughs> I mean, you know, we had nailed down like the basic concepts, but yeah. I didn't know... I, I changed it a lot as of writing it, like ask, you know, you'd find some piece of academic research and you'd say, wow, I hadn't thought about that. That mm -hmm. must really connect to this piece that I hadn't thought about. And those things really were happening during the writing process. And so they were extremely supportive. So that was great for me, for me. I, I read in one of yours, you're on Substack, you have a, you have a page and I read in one of the posts that you said you wanted to write about food that isn't pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah, food is, so in the food space, um, a lot of what we have in, in, in how we, food, food writing can be very limiting sometimes. It's wonderful in some ways, but it's also limiting. There's ways we talk about food. And a lot of that is like if you go on Instagram and you see people shooting their dishes and things that they made and the process for cooking, and they're, it's all really beautiful. And then we always have these words about, you know, the sort of iconic table coming together, sharing food. Um, we all are, you know, um, you know, creating this community around this beautiful table, but we never really talk about this sort of double-edged sword of vulnerability and discomfort, which really go hand in hand whenever you're talking about anything. And it was interesting because I had a launch event last night and we were talking about the uncomfortableness of family dinner. And we have sort of being told that family dinner is this really beautiful thing and we should be doing it. But I think a lot of the dysfunction in our families gets played out on that table at mealtime when we're all sitting down together. And, um, and so I just feel like we don't talk about that enough. Like, it's just, it's like, oh, this is beautiful. We're all sharing dinner together, but nobody talks about what's really happening um, because vulnerability is connected to discomfort. That's really interesting. Um, it reminds me of something I read in your book about a chef that you met who was panhandling mm -hmm. to make ends meet. And I, I found it really ironic because Las Vegas, where there are a million restaurants and venues, and there's a chef that's like needing to scrape up money. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And, um, and well, this is really part of the, you know, this is a very food uh, related uh, topic. I think we all thought in 2020, when there were these sort of great reckonings about labor and who's getting paid and what people are being paid. And I think that people really look to the restaurant industry to make some changes um, so that uh, from front of house to back of house, people were taken care of better in terms of a living wage. We know that tips are sort of a leftover um, uh, relic from uh, enslavement days and reconstruction when white people didn't want to pay black people for cooking in their restaurants. And so those people were left to uh, their wages were essentially charity from people who were eating. Um, and so we still live in this like very archaic system. We still have this very archaic system. And I know the margins for restaurants are very, very tight. And there's, you know, the problem is complex. It's not like one thing and it's not easily fixable. But it was pretty amazing that in a city that's really built on restaurants and built on entertainment that this guy and his family were like living in his car and couldn't make ends meet. And really, I mean, the bar and restaurant that he was working for was probably getting uh, money from the government to keep people employed and to give people, um, you know, money. And, and those, those people were not getting the money that they were promised. And so workers really got screwed during that time. 
You know, something you said a few minutes ago, I have not, it, it's never occurred to me how the, the whole, the whole way of tipping came about. Yeah. I mean, that's actually just a relic from reconstruction. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really just charity, right? When you think of it, like this, this, this person's wages are dependent on whether you, you know, tip or not, or whether you're even from something more benign, like you're from Europe and you're not used to it and you don't really know. And so you just don't tip anything because you don't really understand the custom. But when that's your bread and butter, that's how you make rent. That's how you, um, you know, that's how you have your stability in the world. It becomes a huge issue. And we haven't, we, this is, this is sort of all come out and we really haven't reckoned with it in the restaurant industry at all. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, Interesting. Will you read to us from the meth lunches? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to read a section about a woman named Miss B. Uh, Miss B is a an unhoused uh, Korean woman who uh, is still in my life. She's uh, an amazing soul and um, stops by and, um, you know, often says hi. She is somebody who I think... Um, I could really do very well in housing with some support, with some light support from a social worker checking in and making sure her bills are getting paid and things like that. And so um, um, we had a um, a relationship and this is just a small section of a little bit about her. Okay. Miss um, B is a woman vibrating with butterfly thoughts. She has what doctors call flight of ideas. Her thoughts come out to me like butterflies released from her mouth. One beautiful, one shy, one barking, one tragic, and they all flutter about. Then as her focus changes and the topic shifts, their brief lives sputter out and they disintegrate. They make room for more thoughts to tumble out into the air. I listen for as long as I can until I decide to just nod and murmur affirmatively. She doesn't seem to notice and keeps right on talking. I load some groceries into the pantry while she talks, and then she notices the plants out in front of the the front yard, and a kind of clarity moves over her. She starts telling me about Korea and gardening. The soil is better there, she says. Her hands make a cup as if she is holding it and feeling it. It is dark and moist, she tells me, and then sort of spits at the desert soil she's standing on. I can't help but laugh. Being a gardener in the desert is not easy. But for Miss B, gardening brings memories of her father in Korea. They had a farm and she tended the vegetables and fruit with him. Cabbages, radish, persimmons, peppers, and onions. The butterflies stop slipping out from her lips now. She pauses on his memory. Her father is important to her. His memory brings clarity to her thoughts. Miss B tells me about kimchi making in her village. She never names it, but I think she's talking about gimjang where the community makes kimchi together in large batches. Many Koreans now simply buy kimchi at the store, but there was a time when whole communities came together to make kimchi. The tradition of gimjang historically started by procuring small fish. The women went to the fish boats in the spring. They harvested small shrimp and anchovies. Sea salt was harvested in the summer and red chili peppers came from the gardens in late summer. They were dried and ground to powder. And then in late fall, the community, largely made up of women, came together to make huge amounts of kimchi. Recipes were passed on, mothers-in-law to daughters-in-law. Children were invited in. It was about tradition, transmitting recipes and techniques to new generations, and being in community together. The women lightened the load for each other by cooking, prepping, and cleaning together. They made enough to share. It is as much social and cultural as functional. These kinds of multi-person food preparation events helped all members of the community have food. In this case, enough kimchi for every family through the winter months, and it created social capital and connectedness among people in the community. It's about the food, yes, but mostly it's about survival over generations through being connected and present, And in many ways, it is no different than inmates making a spread in a jail unit. The making of the food is practical, but the camaraderie and connection are the point. Mm. Thank you so much. 
I love kimchi, actually. Me too. <laughs> I, I mean, there's so much I learned in, in this book. The there's something else. I found a note that um where you talk about misdemeanors and you talk about a guy, John Owen, who stole corn and then gets two years for stealing. Mm-hmm. And, another, and he had to pay back his court costs. Yeah. So, and you just said, you say, you know, it sounds like an antiquated system that no longer applies, but it's like a way to get people into um, labor, like free labor. Mm -hmm. That was generally um, during, so misdemeanor laws were basically meant to surveil black people and keep them from going in areas where uh, white people didn't want them to go. So for instance, like you would see, like maybe they couldn't go on a certain, they couldn't go on a certain road or after time, after a particular time. So you would see like black folks walking down like railroad tracks instead of like being on the road or in this particular direction. So it started as a way to police black people during reconstruction, but then it just, we just kept on using it. And now it's become a bit of um, a way to ensnare uh, lots of people um, for particular, but particularly people of color and people in marginalized communities and people who are predominantly poor, it's a way basically to keep them in debt to the system. So they're constantly having to, you know, pay fine, fine costs, fines for, uh, for, you know, various kinds of misdemeanors. They're usually not violent. They tend to be, uh, trespassing the, those kinds of things, having, like a particular, like a small unlawful thing in a car, those kinds of things. But what it does is it opens up an opportunity for the police to be able to search the car even more, those kinds of things. So we know that people get really trapped in misdemeanors and New York is different, but here in Nevada for the longest time, if you didn't pay your traffic ticket you and oh, they would put, put a issue a warrant out for your arrest. This really changed this year. Mm-hmm. So just a, you'd forget to pay your ticket. They wouldn't, in New York, they sort of hound you to pay your ticket before they boot your car. But here you would just show up and you'd find out you had a warrant for your arrest uh, and you get pulled over for, you know, just a regular traffic violation and you've got a warrant. And basically they can upend your life and take you in. Um, And that if you're poor, that means potentially losing your job, losing the stability of your income. It means having to maybe have your car impounded. It means chasing after uh, the money to try to um, get yourself out of trouble with the courts. I mean, there's just so many implications for how that can set vulnerable people back. Um, And so I'm not suggesting at all that we shouldn't have misdemeanors, but just that people can be really caught up in those traps and they tend to be people without a lot of resources. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, the other, it's interesting. I, as you were talking, I was, I was focusing, I, I started focusing on the subtitle of your book, which is food and longing in an American city. And I started thinking about that because there's food and longing and how talk about the subtitle like how did this subtitle come about so no one in our publishing company my agent or myself could come up with a subtitle they wanted it to be very like much more academic and i wanted it to be i wanted it to be a take on um fear and loathing in las vegas and do like food and longing in las vegas and just sort of do like a very cliched sort of thing um and that wasn't even my, that was like a friend of mine who came up with that. We were all sort of, you know, but this was really the closest, I think that connection uh, to Fear and Loathing, which is so iconic here in Vegas. Um, but then American City is, the idea was that you don't have to be from Vegas or New York to really understand what this book is about, because it's about a lot of cities. It's Detroit, it's Minneapolis, it's Miami, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's what cities go through, right? And um, we all have different issues, but we all also have the same issues to deal sure. with. And so I think that the, I love the, 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 the tagline and the subtitle a lot because there is a longing. People are longing to be, um, I, at the end, I talk about worthiness. And I think they're 
longing to feel worthy in our society and in our country. And, you know, this idea of what worthy really means and who is worthy and who isn't worthy of, you know, is Chris Preston, who, you know, is a chef and trained and he's panhandling in a parking lot. I mean, is he worthy of having, you know, like his goal was 50,000 a year, 50,000 a year. That's like a doable goal. That's, that's so doable. Right. And then to not be able to attain that and what that does to his definition of himself as a man and provider for his family and, um, you know, holding the hopes of his family while he's, you know, struggling. So those things are really important. What sort of surprises have you, have you encountered? Have you felt in moving to Las Vegas? It's really different here. Um, so one of the things, you know, it's funny, we talked about this a bit at the, there's a lot of New Yorkers here. And um, we talked a little bit about how, how um, Las Vegas is much less segregated than New York City. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, New York City is really segregated into neighborhoods and um, they're really not only uh, ethnically segregated and racially segregated, but also socioeconomically segregated. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in communities with people who live in weekly hotels and people who have, you know, um, McMansions. And there's, you know, there's and everything in between, you know, historic homes, you know, and then, you know, um, you know, people living in, you know, some of the most, um, you know, awful apartments and, you know, and in living, you know, we, I do a lot of, I talk a lot about weekly apartments here and weekly apartments are, um, one of the big, um, um, just, you know, one of the big unstable housing elements here. And I know we don't, you don't really have that as much in New York, but there's a lot less, there's a lot more, um, connectivity in terms of people across socioeconomic levels. And so you find that there's a lot of diversity in neighborhoods. And that means that there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, people coming up against each other, because when you have different socioeconomic desires, um, then what you're going to fight for for your neighborhood is going to be different if you're poor than it is if you're rich, right? If you're rich, you want an Erewhon or a Whole Foods or you want, you know, something that's going to like befit um, what you think your food should be. But if you're making minimum wage, you're not going to be able to afford a whole paycheck, you know, call it a whole paycheck, but you know, the, the, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to afford Whole Foods, right? So you're going to be advocating for a different kind of shopping experience. So we have a lot more struggle that way, I think. Um, you can't really ignore people the way you can in New York. You can just sort of live your own life, put your blinders on and go do your thing if you want to. And that really isn't the case here in the West. Yeah, I don't, I don't wonder what, what everyone's view of Vegas is. I mean, we, we all know it to be you know, the gambling Mecca and the place you go for big shows and all of that and gambling's everywhere. But I don't think we think of Las Vegas as a place of communities, you know? Um, yeah. I think most people think we live in hotels. I mean, you know, a lot of people will ask quite legitimately, like, do you live in the Cosmo or do you live in the Sahara? You know, like that kind of thing. And, 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 you know, it just, it's sort of an inside joke here, you know, when people ask that, but at the same time I get it because, but this is how I, I I get people to think about it, particularly New Yorkers. You know, you guys, you know, Times Square is not New York City, mm-hmm. right? And the Strip is not Vegas. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's outdoorsy. Uh, we have indoor-outdoor living, you know, like constantly the doors and windows are thrown open. People are like basic, except for the summer, are kind of living outside. We have like amazing mountain biking and hiking. And mm-hmm. it's really an incredible place to live. Um, and a lot of us, if we don't work on the strip, never go to the strip. Mm-hmm. So, and, but it's very much a hospitality town for sure. And there's a large homeless population. And I mean, I've read about the, the people that live in the underground tunnels. Uh, yeah. 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 There are, I mean, okay. We have a homeless problem here, but what we're really talking about is under 10,000 people. Um, you know, the pro and, and we also have space to build 
right? We do have water resource issues, but we have we have land to build. So unlike New York, where you really can't stack more housing in various places and there's a lot of space issues, one of the things we have, you know, I've always said that we could solve the homeless problem here or at least make it more stable because we have land, we have the ability to come together and make decisions. And we're really talking about less than 10,000 people. It's going to be much harder in New York, San Francisco, those kinds of places. Um, but we also have no taxes out here except for sales tax. And one of the reasons that so many people like to come to live here is because there's no state tax. And so a lot of our uh, education and social programs suffer because there just isn't funding for it. Right. So it's a double-edged sword again, you know, very complicated. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was curious about Charlie, because at the beginning, I think that's his name. At the beginning, he's not doing well. And he's he has a major meth problem. And mm -hmm. by the end of the book, um, it sounds like he is doing well. And you you say something to the effect of that you never write people off. Yeah. And I, I was curious about that because I mean meth is one of those drugs that's so hard to recover from. Totally. Totally. And um, so when Charlie worked for us. So Charlie's super talented and uh, like a really lovely guy. And his wife is really fantastic. But you couldn't tell that when they worked for us because they were chronically using. And so when you read in the book, there's just these cycles of like where they would go from, you know, being on meth to the crashing from meth to like trying to stay off meth to going back on meth and like just over and over and over again. And I... um. I even wrote the first chapter, The Meth Lunches, which wasn't a chapter. It was just a standalone essay for the NPR magazine out here. And I didn't even tell them that I had written it or that I was going to write about them because mm -hmm. I really felt that they would never read it. And it would, it would, I felt that they were gone, mm -hmm. um, that they would never make it back from this. Mm -hmm. And they did end up seeing it and um they and they they did have they sort of um went their separate ways they both went into treatment they both had several relapses these things are very very entrenched and difficult and but then it whatever happened the last time was the last time and mm -hmm. they were able they they they're parenting their child the new their new child their little girl they have a house they just uh, went from renting to buying a house they are living their lives you know making you know he's working he's a super talented guy she's working they're you know they have this beautiful sun drenched kitchen in which I zoom um, interviewed them and. I see how well they're doing and, you know, their lives aren't perfect. I mean, they have problems like the rest of us, but it really taught me a lesson about how little I know about human resilience and that when, and not to count anyone out, like mm. no one, you know, like when you look at somebody and think that person is never going to get their shit together, they are never going to be okay. And then um, or worse, like that person's just going to die in the street. They're dead. Um, you know, I'm just never going to think that way again. Um, because, uh, because every time I do, I think of Charlie and I think if he can do it, anybody can do it. You know, that he was really low. Well, you know, you see, I mean, through the book, you seem like the most patient person or the most <laughs> <laughs> pathetic or something i mean you keep helping you continue to help and feed people and i went where does that come from you know it probably comes from being adopted and feeling like i have to do more to be you know to be given a seat at the table i think a lot of people have that after some trauma and um and it feels like i need to be giving to be in the world and to you know to be a participant that way um 
And so I just feel really compelled to do it. I can be very misanthropic and very cynical and not very patient. And so it's something that I really work on. And it's something that I had to work on while dealing with people who were really in very difficult circumstances and, um, and really, um, uh, you know, just going through a lot and, and, and really understanding that a lot of that is the stress on the brain, the stress on the free prefrontal cortex that comes from being poor, being stressed, being traumatized, being in, you know, having to figure out where your food's coming from every day or where that next drug hit is going to come from every day. It's got to be very, very stressful on the brain. And so it's incumbent upon us to be patient because that's a really hard place to be in so yeah it's a rare quality you know well I guess I don't know I mean I feel like I feel like there's a lot of community activists who are just in it every day and they they didn't stop you know there's a really fantastic food pantry that opened during the pandemic here that's indigenous run you know, they cook fresh food for everybody. They have fresh vegetables and they didn't stop. You know, I stopped. I had enough. I was like a year I was in and out and like, okay, I'm done now. Like, this yeah, is- but you, you had to, the city closed you down. They did. That's true. But I, I'm still not, you know, look, I, at the end of the day, even after they closed me down, I really had to ask myself why citizens were doing the, this work when the government wasn't doing the work. And that was something that I really walked away from the experience saying, why is the government abandoning its most vulnerable citizens? And um, and why is it necessary for neighbors to pitch in and do this stuff? You know, and I got kind of angry about it, you know? Yeah. So I'm not doing food donation right now and I'm not doing food giveaways right now because I sort of am grappling with those feelings and really not sure how to handle it going forward, you know, in terms of what is the best way to be activist in the community. Right, yeah, it's interesting. Um... I want to ask you about a, a writing a writing question, which is at the beginning of the memoir, you have an intro that says basically, you know, you've changed some names, you've played with time, you've conflated a couple of people into one. And beginning memoirists are always curious how to how to write, how to do that. Like, can they do that? How much can they change? If it has to be a true story. Mm-hmm. Then how can you like mess around? You know, if there's four kids in the family, you only mentioned three, isn't that lying? So mm, great question. You know, could you, could you uh, give your thoughts on that? Yeah. So uh, in that quote, my daughter says, um, she said, I'm just going to read yeah. it right from here. Cause she said it really well. Uh, she said, you can write my story, but everyone needs to know it's your take on my life and it's not actually my life. Yeah. Um, and that's really something that has sort of stayed with me because this is why, for instance, that if you have teenagers, they don't want you sharing their pictures, not because you don't take good pictures or whatever, because it's your take on their life. Right. And they don't really, you know, you're like, oh, isn't she so cute or whatever? And they're trying to like grow up and be adults. And, you know, you're like, you're defining who they are through this, the way you've taken this picture in the actual lens in in which you see them. And so it's really the same for me with characters. Like this is my husband and it's all true, but he's also a character in the book. I, Mm -hmm. I haven't talked about every possible element of his personality or our relationship. And I haven't shared all that. I've I've been able to pick and choose. And so he's still a character in this book, even though it's, um it's it, it's it's him that's truthful um there's also another element to this which is that i took everybody at face value in the book and when you're dealing with people who are in active addiction who have mental illness um a really severe mental illness or just in the depths of poverty and trying to figure things out or unhoused right um a lot of those folks um aren't I, you know, they do a thing called confabulation, which is confabulation is like a mental health term in which you have a bunch of memories that you've basically made up, right? Mm-hmm. So I just decided that whatever anybody told me, I was going to accept it at face value. I wasn't going to investigate it. I wasn't going to see if they said they, you know, and the person I read about, Miss B, 
originally told me that she lost her apartment. And so I thought she had just lost her apartment. And because a lot of people had been evicted during that time when I was running the pantry. So I just assumed and believed her when she said, no, somebody stole my money and I lost my apartment. That seemed like a completely legit story. Well, she was talking about something 20 years ago, like Mm -hmm. she wasn't talking about right now. And so I just, I didn't, I didn't drill down to see if everybody was telling me the truth or their truth, jive with my truth. I didn't worry about that. And I just tried to listen to people where they were and, and, and really try to put that on the page so that people had an understanding of what was happening in the moment. And there's a perfect example of this in Charlie's story, which is the first chapter Um, One of his friends talks about this shrouded being that was following him around ever since he was a kid. And after the book was already in and edited, I had been talking to him and I asked him about the shrouded image. And he said, oh, that was probably something I told you when I was high. And Mm -hmm. but that was he was high when I was talking to him. So that was part of that experience. And so, um, so I just, that's how I sort of tried to manage all those truths because they were sloppy and a little um, complex. Yeah. How long did this book take? Uh, I started writing at the end of November, 2021. And I had it handed in a year later. So And yeah, I had it in a a year later. So it was pretty fast. And I sort of had to do that because I have four kids and I have to hold the story in my head and I can't, I'm not one of those writers who could like write it over five years. I just couldn't, I can't, I have to just do it and get it done because it feels like it could just be, you know, the chaos could take over and then it won't get done. So I had to like really focus and just bear down on it. And writing fast can be a good idea too, because we change. And if you take a really, I found this with Mm -hmm. a project I worked on, I was so different by the end of the book. It's like, I have to change all that now. Yes. Yes. It doesn't even apply anymore. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's good to just get it down and get it in. And even after a bunch of things changed, even after I got the book in, a bunch of legislation changed. So even some of the things I wrote about in that year had changed during the editing process. And mm-hmm. I had to go back and redo like, you know, my assessments of things or put something in a past tense instead of like, the, you know, it was just kind of crazy. Like it was just really crazy. So if you had done that over long, you'd just be changing it all the time. Well, the other thing too, in, you know, a, a great thing about going straight through and something you can do, I'm sure you did, as you're saying, is backfill. You know, yeah. so instead of stopping at a place and where you're stuck and you don't, want, I don't know, you just keep going and then backfill it later. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So did you take a lot of notes through the time you're writing about or like, like dialogue, for instance, this is another question, right? Beginning memoirs say, well, I don't remember what we said. I didn't write it down. It's like, well, how about what you might've said? Or what you said, right? I mean, how did you deal with dialogue? I do write things down, but because, and I, so now I'm working on a second book and I do write things down and I do it on purpose because I have the privilege of knowing that I'm writing a book, whereas I didn't know that last time. And I would have been way more meticulous had (laughs) I known, um, But I did interview people as I, at the end, I started after getting to know all these folks, I did realize, you know, I was writing stuff in my Substack and things like that. And Substack is a really great way to hold your notes for something. Um, So, and I would really advise writers to, if to do a Substack, if they feel that that's something they have time to do, even if they don't have a huge audience, because Um, a lot of the things that I'm writing about in the world, either for other publications or for um, the book, really started as part of my Substack when I was, it was fresh in my mind and I would write like a little, a little uh, essay, right, about it, or I'd write little notes about it or those kinds of things. And that really helped because those were actually fully formed thoughts 
and mm -hmm. compositions that could be like sort of loaded into a manuscript and then you can build around that. And so um, obviously I would take meticulous notes um, and I keep a notebook and I also voice memo record all of my subjects when I'm, but I also take notes because I have to write it in order to remember it. But I really think Substack is an amazing place to be able to air some of these ideas that you have that could go into your book. So I'm curious though, if it's, I mean, I've heard publishers or editors say, you know, don't put portions of your novel on your blog or, or online, because then we may not want it because it's, it's there. Is it, so is it different with Substack because it's a different venue or what is it? What's the well, difference? There is a difference. Yeah, I can't speak to novel. I really can't speak to the world of fiction because I just I don't really write fiction and I don't really know what publishers would want you to do or not do. Right. My sense is I, my sense is probably like a publisher wouldn't want you to put your novel on Wattpad. They're probably not going to publish it, you know, like whole with you've got installments on Wattpad. But a lot of what I write in Substack because it's every week is not as refined hmm. as some of the things that I would write in the book that were like heavily copy edited. And, you know, there was a lot of professional opinion about each of the sections and what I was writing, but on Substack, I'm putting up, you know, at least one essay every week in which there's at least a couple pieces of research attached to those ideas. And then I'm also getting people's ideas like if I make a mistake, somebody will say, well, this isn't really correct because here's this. And then I have that correction already that I can then use in a broader form of work. So for me, it feels almost like a rough draft, right? Like it's not a rough draft, but it's a draft that I can sort of use yeah. like, oh, this will be great for the book in chapter four. And then I can build around that. So it's more yeah. conversational. Yes. I mean, it's like, you can throw in little filler words and it's okay because you're yeah. being conversational. You can swear, you can, you know, no, seriously, you can use whatever your, you can be your voice. Like it doesn't have to be author voice. It can be like, you know, Barbara's, you know, just, you know, sitting there drinking her coffee, talking about whatever. Do you know what I mean? It can be about, you can write memoir about your day. I mean, there are some really amazing substats that are just, you know, people writing about things that are important to them and it's just their voice. And then that later can be taken yes. and built into something else. And you That's have true. that, you have that thing at your disposal. So you're never really looking at a blank page, which is the really terrifying thing is to look at that blank page. Yeah. Right? No, I really appreciate you clarifying that for me because, you know, a few people have said, you really need to be doing Substack and I have a page, but I haven't written anything because I'm like, how am I going to put all my energy into writing that when I'm working on this? But yeah, you know, it's hard. Just talk, just have it be a place where you put notes, where you share thoughts, where you can be conversational yeah. talking to. Like some people do it for marketing, like marketing their work, but right. I think it's really valuable. It's just a place to be a writer and their notes, which is like their Twitter, you know, that's just a part of, um, just a part of the Substack network is also really great for writer advice and connecting with other writers. And it's just very geeky and nerdy. It's not like, it's not like, you know, pictures of Kim Kardashian or something, you know I mean? It, it, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but you know, there's, there's a lot of good information there. And I would, but I would say this to writers not to get caught up in the numbers, the opens, or your subscribers, because what you're doing is trying to stretch your writing. You're not marketing anything. You're just trying to like provide, you know, this sort of place where maybe your fans, you know, the people who really read you, who really like your stuff can go there and maybe chip in a little bit. It's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be your profession, you know? Right. right. And so you can, yeah, like you said, you can charge, you can put you know, people can support you or not and, and maybe not get everything, but get some stuff. Yeah. And I just like that because I know some writers who are doing well with this and um, it's just- Some writers are kicking ass out there with this, yeah. like getting paid. They actually are making a living wage, which yeah. is, you know, incredible. It's wild. It's yeah. wild. Um, 
we have a few more minutes. So I wanted to ask you a few things. One is um, if you're doing a cookbook, I mean, there's so many recipes in this book. Oh my gosh. You know, it's like, um, I mean, um, I would do one if somebody asked me to do one. If somebody paid me to do one, I would do it. Uh, recipe development isn't fun for me. It's actually pretty arduous and it's, it goes against the sort of detail oriented. It's like the, it's like the editor brain, not the writer brain. And uh, it takes some of the joy out of cooking for me. So I would do it if I were paid well to do it, but I don't know that I would do it just for the fun of it. Like that would be, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of testing, right? I mean, you have to have recipe oh, so much and to do it correctly. Like when people do it really correctly, it's not just the cookbook author who's testing. It's like, it goes out to testers and then there's multiple iterations and you've got to buy tons and tons of groceries that, you know, basically out of your advance, it's not like uh, you get lots, you know, you get your advance and your grocery money and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yes. So um, I think you'd have to do cook, write a cookbook if either you're being paid a lot of money or you really love it. So I have an idea for your Substack. Oh, tell me, tell me, tell me. <laughs> I think because you're not planning a cookbook, I think mm -hmm. so often you should put a recipe in there for the paid subscribers. That's a great idea. I could yeah. do that. I mean, that's what a lot of people do is they make their essay free. Mm -hmm. And then their recipe is paid. And I could try that in the new year. It's not a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, um, once in a while, you know, not not every week, but yeah. You don't have I mean, to if have I got paid it. for it, I would do it. You yeah. know, I, I would totally do it because it would be worth doing it. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I'm gonna think about that, Barbara. I'm gonna have to subscribe. I'm gonna have to actually pay money. <laughs> I don't care when you do it, because I have subscribed. I'm just I just haven't anything yet I don't have every my whole thing is free so yeah, I I really have always been in terms of blogging about free access to my writing and that's just been and that's part and parcel of just you know having the privilege to do that so hmm. well I'm, were there any surprises in writing the meth lunches I mean as you you know it sounds like you wrote it fast and you had a pretty clear idea so what surprised you? Um, how much I didn't know about abject poverty. Hmm. Um, I also really learned about how befuddled people can be with people with extremely complex issues. So I sort of lump people into two categories when I was like working on the pantry and when we were in foster care. So it's like um, one, uh, like some people, if you give them $20 or you let, or you put them in a hotel or you buy them dinner or you give them a lift someplace, you can really change that the day for somebody for that. Right. But there's a group of people who have such complex problems that, and this, the unhoused are a perfect example of really, really complex problems. Not one problem, right? Like they could be dealing with traumatic brain injury, mental illness, addiction, like a lot of stuff, right? There is no one act that can fix the situation. There's nothing you can do, right? As an onlooker. And so we tend to just ignore them. And then also disconnect from them. So that's why we have those like names, like, oh, it's a tweaker, you know, what a dirt bag, you know, that kind of stuff, because it makes it us have a little bit of freedom to objectify them and they're not like us. And I was a lot like that when I first learned, I mean, I'm, I'm a progressive, I'm, you know, but I'm pretty, you know, even when I was struggling as a college student, I still didn't think of myself as somebody who was dealing with abject poverty. You know, I was just broke, right? There's a difference between broke and poverty. So um, I never felt that like the floor could like move out from under me and then I would disappear forever, you know, that like I would be forgotten forever. And so I really think that there is, um, I think that the surprise for me 
was how much we've disengaged from people with very, very complex problems because the solutions are not easy, um, because they require uh, long periods of time, uh, lots of diversified services, lots of different uh, interventions, and it's over a pay grade and we don't know what to do. And so we just do nothing. And we, you know, we really do live in a time where we're going to have to answer for why we step over people's bodies in the subways. And like, I just don't understand. And I think I didn't really understand it the way I understand it now mm-hmm. and how responsible we all are for just sort of turning away from it and saying, well, it's not really my job, not a social worker, you know. And at the same time, I know that I can't fix that person's problem. So whose responsibility is it? Well, it's the government's responsibility. And we need to demand that we have a country that takes care of the most vulnerable people in our country. And isn't it isn't left to citizens to pick up the pieces for that. And those and I really feel that much more firmly now than I think I ever did. And I've always been a bit of a bleeding heart, but I really got it this time. Really got it. Did you expect to be as involved with the community as you've been? No, no, no. It wasn't planned at all. It wasn't planned. But it's also like you can access people here. So Vegas has, Vegas is a big city. We have a couple million people, but it's also kind of a small town. Like when I first, when we first would have dinner parties here, we would invariably have, we would invite people over and then we would like, find out in the middle of the party that two people we, you know, invited had a terrible breakup or like, you know, cheated on their partners with each, you know, something horrible, you know what I mean? And like, we'd be like, oh shoot, we didn't know that we weren't, but you know, so a lot of people know everybody here and sort of flow in similar circles, right? Like all the hospitality people know each other, the culinary workers know each other, the restaurant, you know, so you sort of, you can really make a community you can really connect to a community in the way that you could connect to a community, like in a building in New York. Like we had that in our building when I lived in Harlem, we all moved into this building at the same time. It was brand new and everybody sort of helped each other out. Our kids were playing in the hallway and it was very communal and it was really great, but that's really the only time or even, or maybe after nine 11, when I really experienced that in New York. Mm. Well, we are getting to the end of our time. And I wanted to ask you if you're reading anything good. Mm. Um, I just finished. Um, I just finished Freddie DeBoer's How the Elites uh, Ate the Social Justice Movement, uh, which was really um, informative and interesting. And I learned a lot from that. And um, I am very excited about uh the new uh i think it's called latinismo uh which is the new latin cookbook coming out that came out uh just came out and it's out right now and it's a fantastic cookbook and i cannot wait to cook every recipe from it so those are my two my nonfiction and my cookbook so any tips any words of wisdom for the writers listening especially the memoirs Oh, I love you, memoirists. I love you. I love the work that you're doing. Um, you know, I think that um, being very granular and extremely specific in your writing um, is the sort of really beautiful writing that a lot of us memoir readers love to read, that specificity um, where you really get into the nitty gritty of how people feel and um, commune with the world. And it's what we love about memoir so much. And it really, um, I get very excited when people get very granular and really take me into their world and place me there. And I feel like I'm right there with them. And it's one of the great joys of reading memoir. And I really, you know, would love I just, you know, if you have mem, if you have some of your memoirs that you love that you would like to share with me, I would love to hear them because I would love to. I, I, it's an amazing genre. It's an amazing genre. Well, you do that in your book. You do that in the meth lunches. So thank you. Um, you know, your your book is a study for how to write memoir. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. It's that hybrid thing. And I never knew that's what it was called. So thank you Barbara, <laughs> for giving me that language because I didn't know it was like, I didn't know there was such a thing as a hybrid thing, but it is. So that's great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been so much fun. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who help make this show possible. I should say I also have a Substack page called Pen on Fire, and there you can find more with Kim that we talked about after the show. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music and sound editing. And by the way, if you like the music you hear on the show, you can find an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. Search out the artist Just My Type. It's great music to work by, write by, do things by. Travis also has other music on there under his name. You can access our archive of shows, 25 years worth, at writersonwriting.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, email writersonwritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach Travis Barrett at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Bye.